Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Lucy Amundsen at Anoka County Library, Rum River. Lucy Amundsen is a self-described reluctant farmer and co-owner with her husband Jason of Locally Laid Egg Company, a ranch enterprise in Duluth that supplies pasture-raised eggs to markets in Minnesota, Iowa, and Indiana. Amundsen holds an MFA from Hamlin University and is a past contributor to the Star Tribune and Reader's Digest Association. When this plucky couple, with no real agriculture experience between them, decided to leave their professions to start up a mid-sized chicken farm, Amundsen applied her considerable writing talents to a part memoir, part expose about the experience. Kirkus Reviews recommends Locally Laid highly, stating, the author's skepticism and her husband's optimism collide to create a laughable tale. Behind the humor, however, Amundsen reveals some alarming truths about today's egg and poultry industry, along with insights on what we can do to turn the situation around. Thank you. You're all very sweet to make that noise. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Uh, I usually start all my talks by introducing myself as Lucy, co-owner of Half the Debt of Locally Laid Egg Company, because uh, that's really kind of what farming endeavors are. It's really an accumulation of debt, and I wish I had better understood that at the time. <clears throat> uh, the book is set up in five acts, and the first one, Hatch, uh, seems like the perfect place to start because while it did, it was an idea that needed to incubate, there was a conspiracy to devise a plot going on. My spouse, my spouse was Jason, was just so secretly into chickens and I didn't really know, other than we had um, recently had uh, five chicks in our back, backyard, although he hadn't quite successfully built a coop yet for these chicks, and they were living in our garage, defecating on all my totes, you know, that I keep my Christmas ornaments in. Um, but, but that was all we had going on, and I thought it was a cute hobby for him. He's not, he's not a really skilled guy. He's not going to hear this podcast. He's, um, you know, he never built a birdhouse or anything. He's, he has other skills. 
but, but being handy isn't one of them. So when he took me out to dinner, oh, we had just had this glorious day. My children were on a rare weekend away. We had been puttering around the yard in the sun, and then we went out to Mexico Lindo, the only Mexican restaurant in Duluth, Minnesota. And he starts talking, he starts talking about commercial poultry. And I'm not really understanding, but you know, the beer is cold, the chips are warm. <laughs> I'm, I'm dressed up. I'm, I'm just going to drink another beer and let this all wash over me. And he starts talking about the caged egg system, which you probably all know quite a bit about already, that birds are um, live in these cages that for each bird, it's about the, a little smaller than the size of an iPad. They, it's really efficient. They eat, uh, eat in the front. You can see their grain bins. They uh, lay their egg and it is on a rolling, roll away uh, nest box. So it rolls down to over here and it gets whisked away to a production facility where it gets washed. And there are very few people involved and that's how you can have $1.29 eggs. And then we talked about cage free and um, I had been a writer long enough to understand that the term cage-free just seemed a little constipated. Like, what are you trying to say? It feels like it does this linguistic gymnastic, cage-free. Why don't you just say chickens outside, right? Well, I didn't understand this, but those chickens don't go outside. Um, they aren't in a cage, but they're in one giant cage called their warehouse. Uh, although it is better than caged eggs. So I'm, I'm gonna tip, you know, out front say it's a better solution. But um, my joke here is that these birds, it's a little bit like they live in a casino because they have no access to the outdoors. They don't have windows. They don't know what the weather is. It's whatever day or temperature or whatever that the farmer sets for them. So then he starts talking about pasture raised. And this is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about how great it would be to have these birds out on pasture, um, having a varied diet of seeds and bugs and what I now call wrong place, wrong time frogs. Because I didn't realize before having a chicken farm that uh, birds are actually omnivores. And a frog can hop into a paddock and a couple hundred birds will descend on this frog and it'll be like a change purse <laughs> in like minutes. So um, he's talking about this and it's starting to dawn on me through the beer and, and the chips that he's talking about us doing this. <laughs> and I would really like to tell you all that I was just a super supportive spouse. <laughs> but I, I was not. <laughs> I, I was having none of it. Um, and I'll read a little part over here. I nodded as I took another swallow of beer. I didn't say that it sounded like an enormous amount of work or that we live in arguably one of the harshest climates in the continental United States. Nor did I point out that having spent our entire careers jockeying keyboards to make a living, we are not farmers. So while I didn't exactly tune him out, I became a passive listener, a very passive listener. 
Poultry wasn't exactly what I was hoping for, so instead I just enjoyed the rhythm and cadence of his voice. I heard something about pastured hens foraging on grass, producing healthier, delicious eggs with less fat and less cholesterol. Something about the local food movement and its ability to remake America's food system. I signaled the server for a second beer and let it all wash over me with an occasional nod until an utterly unignorable statement pulled me out. This is the kind of farm I want to start. Now I'm listening. In fact, I'm listening so hard, I realized this particular corner of the restaurant was a convergence point for the piped-in music from two separate rooms, and they were competing against each other like dueling mariachi bands. Across from me, Jason's searching my face for traces of excitement about his decision to answer the no noble poultry calling. Start a farm, I thought. This is a man who, until a few years ago, could not identify a pair. <laughs> I swallowed, understanding I would have to steer hard and fight inertia to keep this date on track. Jay, honey, let's be happy right here, right now. I mean, we're living in Duluth, just like you wanted. We finally have real health insurance, and the children have adjusted so well. Lucy, this is so much bigger than that. Had I not been listening when he used itsy-bitsy spider-like hand gestures illustrating the sun nourishing the grass which shelters the breeding insects that augments the pasture, diet of the grazing and exercise birds making for superior eggs? I got irked and defensive. Not that, he believed I had, not that he believed I hadn't followed the ecological circle of life he demonstrated, but rather defensive of the life we'd built. Listen, Jason, for like two goddamn minutes, can we just be without so chasing something else? This is louder than I intend. And the couple next to us eye me. I give them the everything is under control here, sheepish and apologetic smile nod, and I feel our beautiful evening bank and careen off course. And um, from this point, um, uh, there's more, more terse whisper talking, and, um, and then come tears, <laughs> and then that couple gets up and leaves. And um, not like nice tears, but the, like, like, like I honk, it's awful. And I can never, ever go back to Mexico Lindo. <laughs> the only Mexican restaurant in Duluth, Minnesota. So the sacrifices I have made. So um, a lot of things happen, and, um, and we end up starting this chicken farm. But if you, if you do read the book, there are mitigating circumstances. I'm not a complete pushover, but it just really came to this point that I could see that Jason was no longer cubicable. He could not be in a cube anymore, and I just had to let him do this. But I said, you need to have a business plan, you need to take some farm courses, you need to find a farm mentor, and he did all that. But the biggest stumbling block for us was finding someone to sell us birds. And you're thinking, how hard can that be? I go to Fleet Farm, or for us it's Dan's Feed Bin, and there are all kinds of little chicks there under the heat lamp in the kiddie pool. You just grab those up. Well, not if you want 2,000. So you call, you know, who, the hatchery owned by Big Egg, and Big Egg says, yeah, we'll sell you, we minimum order is 30,000. So we're like, oh. So um, after a lot of searching, we found a guy. And if you're starting a new business, I beg you not to predicate all of it on a guy. <laughs> because he might not be a good guy. And our guy was not a great guy. Um, 
for one thing, he packed up all these birds. Actually, it was two orders of 900 birds that we had. So he packed up 900 birds, called and said, I'm on my way, without calling us first, where we would have told him, it's 101 degrees here, and it's Grandma's Marathon weekend, which brings in an extra 60,000 people onto the one highway <laughs> into Duluth. But he was coming, so we had to get ready. And um, I used to read this section called The Day the Chicken Came. And I would look out in the audience, and they'd be so stressed <laughs> that I'm like, oh, if you can read the book in the privacy of your own home and be distressed, distraught there. Um, but I'll just, in uh, shorthand, the birds were really uh, heat, heat stroked and travel weary, and they were not doing very well. Um, we got them out. Um, here they are. That's that very first day. The coops never looked that clean again. Uh, but that first day, and um, I was pretty excited to see them go in at night because, um, well, for one thing, part of our business plan is that we had a poultry butler. And a poultry butler is a little door that goes up and down with the sun. So it made it so that we didn't have to buy a farm. We could rent a farm not where we lived. And I was pretty excited about the poultry butler. I had installed it myself using a YouTube video on the field. Um, it never, ever quite worked right. But this is when that first night they're going to bed. At dusk, hens seek their coop. So reliable is this, there's even a saying, an adage, chickens come home to roost. It's for warmth, it's for protection, it's hardwired. But our first shipment of 900 mature birds just purchased from a commercial operation stands on the field staring. They tilt and turn their head to better align us with their side place eyes as though awaiting instructions. Then as darkness quiets the pasture, I get it. My hands on my lip, I mumble, oh God, these hens are out of sync with sunset because until today, they have never seen the sun. While I'd worried about so many things going wrong with our unlikely chicken startup, chickens not knowing how to be chickens was not one of them. And it continues on here, but um, so the birds, so the sun set, we realized we had to get all 900 of these birds back in the coops. And this was a long process. We, sent, find, we weren't very bright. We had to finally put our son Milo at the door to keep them from hopping back out. Um, and we got them all in. And as I'm about to leave, I look in the coops and I'm like, oh, Jason, they're not roosting. So roosting is when uh, birds should, this is the hoop coop. They should be up on the top over here because um, that's instinctually where they want to go. Um, but these birds are clearly not roosting over here. Um, and they need to roost because, well, the floor plan mitigates that, like, they need to, they need to spread out or else they'll suffocate. Um, so, and, and you want them to be huddled together for warmth, and it's really good for them to get their tail feathers out of, out of the muck. So many good reasons. So Jason, um, Jason very brightly sent me home <laughs> to drink a box of wine. 
<laughs> and waited till the chickens were very deeply asleep. If any of you have had chickens, you know that when they sleep, they're kind of like malleable drunks. Um, I contend any chicken you've seen on the internet wearing a sweater, <laughs> that sweater was put on while they were sleeping and they woke up and they're like, what happened? <laughs> so you can do anything to chickens when they're sleeping. So and when they were sound asleep, he placed them on the roost one by one by one. Um, and he took them about an hour and a half. And, um, and he did that for about two and a half, three weeks. And then they realized that they were chickens. And they became decent hunters because they would go out. And when they first came, it was piteous, like flies would land on them. <laughs> and after a few weeks, they got the hang of it and started really scratching and foraging. So um, it's safe to say it was not an auspicious start. Um, not what we wanted anyway. Um, this is our egg processing facility. Um, you can tell it's very fancy. That is the Aquamagic 5, which is the egg washing machine. It's from the 50s. My joke is that it's so much better than the Aquamagic 4. <laughs> I just can't tell you how. Um, I just show this here because I tell you that we had our first inspection and we failed it. We failed our inspection. And it was because the state um, faxed us uh, the faxed us the regs and shorted us two pages. The ones that said that we essentially needed a commercial kitchen, and what we had was a shed on a field with a hose. And, um, so more failure going on. But we started to get our eggs out, and it's and it there was some good things going on. Um, it. It took me a while to warm up to the farm. I'll, you know, I'm, I might still be working on it, actually, a small amount, because it really did change our lives. For Jason, he loves happy chickens. He's so happy to see these birds out. And I'm, I'm not one of those people who want to assign emotions to chickens or any other of these animals out in the world. But when you see a bird, like they'll stretch and they'll put one leg out, and it's called chicken yoga. And you're like, oh, that's a happy bird. <laughs> yeah. um, and they do lay eggs that have less fat and less cholesterol and, and other things. Because it makes sense that I know when I eat salad and exercise, I'm a healthier person. And I think Lola, um, short for locally, short for laid, all our birds are named Lola. Lola lays a better egg that way. Um, but what gets me excited, well, it happened when we started to be approached to have partner farms. People figured out like, hey, you're, you guys are starting to distribute. I see you in the newspaper. I see you on TV. Um, we have a farm. We would like to produce eggs for you. And I'm like, oh, no. I don't want you to produce eggs for us because I read the Pew Charitable Trust white paper on contract production, and that would put you in servitude. Um, and I was like, no, we absolutely cannot do this until Jason made this amazing point with his point being, if we write the contracts, we can write them so they do not suck. 
Yeah, that's right. We could write them so they do not suck. So we have some pretty open, like, uh, like everyone knows what everyone's margin is. And, and everyone's happy with that. And people can get out of that contract if they want. Or, um, so we do now have partner farms. Uh, because we didn't quite realize it then, but we are in a really hard segment of agriculture. Because really, not only did we go into agriculture, it was arguably the hardest industry out there, we're in the most suppressed sector of it. <laughs> we're very good at this. Um, so during this time, when we're starting to take on a partner farm, trying to figure this all out still, I'm working at Glensheen Mansion. I don't, have you ever been up to Glensheen? Yeah, so haunted, yes. Um, so I, one of the best things about working at Glensheen is part of the university, and you get to rub elbows with a lot of these academic types. And I was um, working on an event with Dr. Randy Hansen. Uh, he teaches agriculture at UMD, and we were chatting. And I was telling him about my enterprise, saying how I didn't feel like we fit in anywhere. And he said, Lucy, locally laid is between small and big ag. You're a mid-level producer, and that's a whole topic of academia, agriculture of the middle. This magical new term encompasses farms grossing between 100,000 and 250,000. Not big, not small. I could have dropped my gourd. We were, it was a pumpkin event. It makes sense that this term middle ag hadn't caught on. There's nothing dramatic about the midpoint, not when there's a pocket-sized victor of Farmer David to root for, or the sweeping might of big machine Goliath. Honestly, there's little that's sexy about either middle age or middle ag, and lucky me, I'm both. Let's see. I quickly learned that locally laid had settled into the not-so-sweet spot, the linty navel of agriculture's center. Mid-sized farms, like awkward teens, don't fit in nicely anywhere. They tend to be too large to sell all they produce directly to the public, but lack the scale to acquire the big boy toys needed for large-scale commodity production. Farmers like us, middlers, have to sell to other business, be it directly to grocery stores, restaurants, or even a distributor. And it's not easy, and there are fewer of us every day. Between 1997 and 2012, the number of these not-too-big, not-too-small types of operations declined by 18%. That's over 130,000 farms that have shuttered the doors and queued the tumbleweeds. And I get into all the economy of scale that is um, just stacked against us and the, trying to break into distributorships and whatnot. It's very, very difficult. But we're doing something Oh, uh, and this is why our partner farmers want nothing to do with marketing. Because I always thought, like, why don't these partner farms of ours want to do this themselves? Because the marketing is really the only fun part. Don't tell Jason that, though. Um, and that is because they are almost all, uh, we have eight partner farms, and we're the only not Amish one. So they, they're not interested in doing Twitter. But it is reviving middle agriculture, what we're doing. And I read a lot of really, really boring books about this and USDA stats and journals, academic journals. And, um, and I even flew out to the University of Maine to speak with Dr. Stuart Smith about it. Um, and he did this really interesting research. In 1910, um, and picture this as an agricultural dollar. You're spending a dollar at the store. 
15% would go towards inputs. Do you know what I mean by inputs? That would be whatever goes in, like whatever you had for fertilizer or seeds or chickens or like young birds, pullets, whatever it is you need for your raw materials, about 15%. 44% went to the marketer. Now, when I say marketer here, I'm not talking Twitter or, or, or Jingle or anything. I'm talking everything that happens to the product to get it to market, be that washing it, packaging it, doing some added value thing to it, turning it into potato flakes if you're doing potatoes. And that left a good big chunk of 41% for your farmer. That's not a bad margin. And when you have a big margin like that, it can help you out when you have, when you have a business that's predicated on weather and pests and, and rodents and all these other things. It gives farmer a little sway. Now, zoom ahead to 1990. Remember Farm Aid and all those things from that era? Well, inputs are up 24%. Can you guess why there's such a big jump? You can think. Pardon? Well, yes. And like, like designer seeds. And, but you're right, very big equipment. Um, Fertilizer, we're using way more fertilizer than we used to, and we're sort of addicted to fertilizer now. Um, and the marketer has gone up to 67% of that ag dollar. And the only thing I can think of is, um, maybe it's microwave mac and cheese, if you can picture that. Like, like, I didn't grow up with microwave mac and cheese. Somehow we figured out how to make that without <laughs> putting water in it and stirring it and putting it in the microwave. But there's a lot of steps to making that, right? A lot of research and development and plastic. And all that adds up, and you're at 67%, leaving not so much for your farmer. Actually, if, you, if, if your item was a, doll, a dime less, like, like your farmer would get nothing. Your farmer is getting 9% out of this equation here. So 9% of a dollar is not very much, does not give you a lot of wiggle room for the drought years or the pestilence years or anything else. So um, to kind of buzz through a couple different ways to look at farm economics, because I know that you were looking forward to me talking about <laughs> farm economics, but I promise this will be quick and painless. Um, all right, so this slide represents Pine County, Minnesota, where we actually do have partner farms. Um, they were our first people to come to us, and we said no. And then they came back, and we said, all right, let's try it. We started with one barn, and now there are five barns in this community um, raising for locally laid eggs. So we encourage our partner farmers to get, uh, have their non-GMO corn grown by their neighbors. So there are three big plots of non-GMO corn being grown in their region by people they know. And we say, hey, you know, you should use your local miller to grind that up. And here's the formula for the feed ration. And then also, um, you should build yourself a, a processing spot. So that way you can do all the washing, like have all five of your barns bring eggs and they bring them by carriage over to the processing barn and, and they have their, they actually have an Aquamagic 6. Uh, it's <laughs> quite, quite a source of contention there. 
And um, I think that's the same. And let's see. And then um, we'll make a commitment to sell them, you know, regionally. We're not going to just sell them in Pine County, but we'll sell them regionally. And so what happens in this scenario is that all this money swirls around. This represents a lot of economic vitality going around. And so that is called, in economic theory, a value chain, where the, all these people value each other and they don't feel like their relationships are competitive. Like maybe it's a little bit less to take their grain, you know, 100 miles, 300 miles away, but they're going to commit to being with the person that they're with. And this is different than vertical integration, where you have your five barns and a truck comes and brings them all their pullets, brings them all their feed, and then you could flip this graphic around. The truck leaves with all their dirty eggs and takes them out of their community to wash them and pack them and sell them all over the country. That would be a more extractive model because then there's not a whole lot of economic vitality going on there. There's no moving and grooving. It's just comes in, comes out, and that's it. And you think, like, how much of a difference can that really make, you know? So you have like a few hundred people, but Pine County isn't all that big. And um, this looks like more in Minnesota or Henriette more specifically, um, but this isn't, this represents Jonah, our farmer. It isn't Jonah because he wouldn't want me to take his picture, but he had been renting his land since he started farming years ago. And this past year, he bought his farm. And that's kind of based on the strength of his locally laid contract. I've also been talking to the people at the state of Minnesota, and we're watching Pine County kind of crawl its way very slowly out of poverty, because that's, that's been an impoverished county pretty much since they've been taking those kinds of stats. So that's really exciting. But I'm gonna, we're done talking economic theories of agriculture. No matter how much you beg me, we're done. <laughs> All right. Um, some of you might have remembered that we were involved in a little contest uh, to win a Super Bowl ad. Uh, we were trying to get a, a loan to buy a farm because it became after the winter chapter, which I also would not read aloud to anybody, <laughs> um, it became clear that we needed, we needed our own farm where we could have a, a well and have buildings and whatnot. But, no one was having our business model back then. Uh, but our business coach, Kurt, said, hey, um, I know you're on your way out, but you should consider entering this contest. It's for a Super Bowl ad, but if you enter, you get two free weeks of in Intuit software. And we're like, ooh, because we had to buy an accounting package, and um, it's kind of expensive, and yeah, we totally want to try this out. So I wrote the little essay I needed to, slapped up our logo, and kind of forgot about it. Jason did not forget about it, because Jason is a more competitive human being than I am. And he says, Lou, whenever I put in Small Business Big Game into the, into the Googler, um, we're indexing number two. And I'm like, Jason, <laughs> you have poisoned the Googler. You have just kept checking way too many times. And we are not number two. There were 15,000 businesses in this contest. So I went to a public computer, and I checked. And um, 
we were indexing at number two, and we were indexing behind normal. Does anyone know what normal is? The National Organization to Legalize Marijuana. <laughs> and I text him, and I say, we are almost as popular as pot. <laughs> I was very, very excited. Um, so we're like, all right, we're really in it. And even if we don't even come close, we'll use this as an opportunity to educate people, to trick them into learning about farm economics. So we made a teeny tiny little bookmark size poster and every pizza place in town was hot gluing it to their to their to-go boxes. Um, of 15 or 16 restaurants were giving it out with checks. Nine or 10 hotels were putting it on their pillows at night. Um, we had lawn signs. Uh, Vote Lola was our website that directed you to the voting website. And we had, I don't know how many, over a dozen votelola.com um, marquees out in the world. And even the contest folks were from California. Their depart marketing department called and said, what is going on in Duluth? Um, and the only thing I can think of is that Duluth has been slapped around a lot, but both by the weather and their post-industrial post apocalypse that happened to them. And they saw in Locally Laid something to root for, and it was a chicken. And they voted, and they voted, and they voted, and the Twin Cities was also very, very good to us. Um, but it was an extremely stressful time as well. I'll read that for you. Once a week before work, a small group of community leaders and business people gathered around a conference table to talk content strategy. These busy folks freely gave their time and talent and abused all their personal connections on Locally Laid's behalf. Truly, it pained me. I carried an oversight feeling of indebtedness and like a kid with too much candy, it felt like an indulgement of too much nice. After our meeting, as everyone scurried off late because of us, it hit me exactly how much people were doing. All that generosity and faith spiraled in my head and chest and I realized that more than anything, I owed them victory. Not just for them, but for the city, this region, the whole dang agricultural movement. Walking out to the parking ramp, I inhaled sharply, bent at the waist, and vomited across the concrete floor. Now at the age of 43, trying to wipe gag splash off my pant legs with a glove compartment napkin, I truly understood the adage, it is better to give than receive. I had no idea how I could ever repay these people other than winning. And the next section starts out, we did not win. Um, we came in number two. Oh, actually, I should say that during this time, we made a series of videos to keep people interested. They live on our YouTube channel, so locally laid. And this is one Jason wrote, um, the, the uh, Duluth Police Department was super good to us. This is, um, Lola is uh, driving our, our egg van, and she is tweeting and driving, and she gets pulled over. And she, um, and she, they, they explain that she's just so excited about the Super Bowl. She has a warning. Um, but it was a very exciting time. And we came in second, which to me, it was actually exactly where we should be. We were like, I think, 13 months old as a company at the time. And I think it was great. If, if you have two or three hours, Jason can tell you how we were robbed. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we were fine. Um, and many, many good things came out of that. I don't, I actually think it's the reason we got to buy our farm. It's why people came together, like six different entities came together to give us a loan. And, um, and we got into, we got into places like Cub Food, like they finally would take a meeting with us. And I don't think that was an accident. So good things happen. Um, I also, uh, I don't know, maybe a year later, got a nasty gram, and this, and I didn't get a lot of that. I don't, I don't get a lot of people angry with me, but this person was very mad that they had bought eggs in haste, got home, and freaked out by the name of our company, like completely freaked out, and um, which I always contend is dirty optional, you know. <laughs> You can go there if you want to, but locally laid is actually exactly what we are. And it's, it's the, it is the, the, what we predicate our whole business on, is that we have these, these really fresh local eggs. And it took me a long time. Now that I am a nice middle-aged lady, I put, put it down for a while and didn't write the first thing that I wanted to and strip it off. Um, but a month had gone by, and I'm like, oh, I do have to actually write to this person. So um, I started writing, and the first thing I did was acknowledge his point. Because I was just like, good for you. Like, you took the time to say you didn't like something, and people, everyone should stand up for what it is that you believe in. And then, as my husband said, I went full frontal farmer on him. And this is an open letter I wrote, and I just wanted to explain to him about the mind-blowing labor that we do. And, uh, and, and, and more labor, like the labor feels endless. I talked about food miles, how most food in your, that you have on your counter has taken, has gone further than you will on vacation this year. You know, like these, this, this is well-traveled carbohydrates or whatever, because it crosses the country maybe multiple times. How we plant a tree with every delivery. Um, we're probably closer to 6,000 trees now. Um, we're micro-brewed, meaning that we have small flock sizes. Um, you know, a typical flock can be you know, 300,000 birds is nothing in my industry. That we have 2,000 birds, really it's very, very small. So, and it takes a lot of work and coordination to make that happen. I talked about how my competitors in this industry, their corn is practically free, you know, because it's all subsidized. And my non-GMO corn, not subsidized. So it's a different deal. And I ended it saying, now, would you have learned all this if we were named Amundsen Farms? I don't think so. Um, yeah, so let me see. I didn't, although I did mail him one. Because so, he mailed me and I mailed him one. So to the point of your letter, I want to say you're right. Our name locally laid is totally cheeky and pushes the envelope. And I am truly sorry we offended you. I'd offer you one of our American-made Local Chicks Are Better t-shirts, but I don't think you'd wear it. <laughs> but here's why we risk your umbrage. When our perfect double entendre breaks through the media clutter in which we're all steeped, we leverage it. With that second look from a consumer, we educate about animal welfare, eating local, real food, and the economies of our broken food system. We all vote with our food dollars every day, and we respect your decision if our playful moniker keeps you from buying our eggs. 
And it's just important to me that you understood everything that was going on behind that name. Now I gotta ask, would you have learned all that if we weren't named Amundsen Farms? So I put this letter out online and Jason very sweetly, he read it and he's like, kind of wonky. <laughs> he's like, don't feel bad if nobody reads this, honey, but you have kind of a lot of USDA stats in here. And I'm like, all right, um, I'm going to put it up anyway. And we went out, uh, we actually went to the bank to uh, open another line of credit. because We're really good at that. And um, my phone's buzzing and my phone is buzzing and Jason gives me the stink eye and I have to turn off my phone. And um, by the time we get out, it's been shared like 200 times. And then by the end of the day, it's been shared like a thousand times. And the next thing I know, it's crashed our website because it's been opened 300,000 times. And I'm getting calls from all over the country. I'm doing a lot of radio. Um, I get to go to NPR, which is like the mothership. Mm -hmm. And I get to talk to um, talk on the morning show for something like 45 minutes about middle agriculture. <laughs> and I am so <laughs> excited that people care about this. And then the real kicker is that we sold 500 t-shirts <laughs> and I didn't have to dip into my line of credit. It was super fun. <laughs> um, and just in closing, I always end on this. It is our homage to American Gothic. Um, my little vignette here is that I kept ruining this picture by laughing because we look so ridiculous. And Jason said, um, you should think about how you felt when you signed the third mortgage on the house. <laughs> and that's how I look. <laughs> Little dower. <laughs>With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Lucy Amundsen and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering how people are reacting to her book, Locally Laid. Moderately well, doing well enough that it's going to go in the paperback because you just never know if that's going to happen or not. Because nonfictions have a different bar. <laughs> like fiction, fiction just does better than nonfiction. So I didn't know if it was going to make it, but it seems so. Um, and uh, in November, I am going to go speak uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas at the School of Public Policy there. Um, I am a William J. Clinton guest lecturer where I will get to tell all these students about um, ag economics, and I can't wait to do that. So I think it's doing pretty well. If anyone can get it on Splendid Table, that would be great. <laughs> this question asker inquires why locally laid eggs often come in colors other than white. Well, actually, it depends on your chicken's earlobes, and I'm not waking that up even. <laughs> um, eggs are, the color of eggs have to do with the earlobes of the chicken and what color they are. Americanas 
have green, uh, green and slightly bluish eggs. We thought we were going to have some Americanas, and we had them in a home flock, and they were such nervous wrecks. We're like, oh, not for us. <laughs> but um, we have these, we have some really mellow birds, which it helps if you're having in number to have mellow birds. We looked at being part of a CSA, but it wasn't legal to do because those, because the, um, the eggs are not under constant mechanical refrigeration. So, so it's not legal for a commercial provider to do that, but a home flock can do that. Another audience member asks what kind of birds Lucy Amundsen and her husband have. Uh, we have red stars, and, which is a sex link kind of bird, and uh, we also have um, uh, boven browns. They're nice and mellow birds. We did for a while have some white birds because uh, I had this marketing idea. If 10% of our eggs were white, it'd be really fun. They have like 11 brown eggs and one white one and maybe I could create the mystique of a green M&M and uh, yeah, no, that didn't work. So people are like, you're so good at marketing. And I'm like, you just don't see the stuff that doesn't work. <laughs> our next question is whether Lucy Amundsen still has her backyard birds. We don't. After um, our son Milo, actually, for a long time, kept those birds up. And then we said he could um, kind of illegally sell the eggs in our neighborhood. Um, they were called Milo's Yokes and Jokes because he wanted to, he wrote uh, little jokes into every carton. <laughs> um, but after a while, he, you know, became a teenager and didn't want to do that anymore. So. This audience member asks if the birds winter at the locally laid farm. Our particular birds on, on Amundsen Farms will, um, actually we have someone who wants them. They're gonna take them over because we have found that our barn is not great at overwintering birds, but our, all our farmers' barns have built those barns to spec and those are nice and airtight. And, um, and work well for them. So we're not gonna overwinter at our particular farm. We did it for a couple winters. We lost money every winter, but um, we, would, we probably need to build a new barn, but someone, some limiting factor in the company doesn't have the stomach to go take out another loan. <laughs> I don't know who that is. This question is about what happens to the chickens after they're done laying eggs. Um, we have found that there is a, a, a Hmong community that will drive up from the Twin Cities and buy them live off the farm. And they will do something with them. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation because I don't want to know if that they're ending up in restaurants. <laughs> but they might just be for home cooking. I desperately want them to be eaten, which sounds bizarre, but they are such well fed, well taken care of birds. Um, but I have to say, typical majority populations of Americans don't want those birds because they're stew hens. And stew hens you need to boil for a convenient, like, you know, two days. You know, it's not something you whip up before bringing your kids to soccer. Um, and, and the Hmong community, are, they're still in touch with, with cooking like that and they really want those birds and we sell them to them very cheaply. It seems like every few weeks I have someone on my page asking me how to put down a bird because a lot of folks will have backyard chickens but not maybe think all the way through to an end of life scenario for them. And so I 
tell them about cervical dislocation, which is the most humane way, and direct them to uh, YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> Jason has offered to make a YouTube video, and I'm like, I don't want that on our channel. <laughs> we get enough terse email as it is from, from, from people who don't eat animals, which I totally respect, but I'm like, then don't buy this product. <laughs> The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if there is another book in the works. Is there another book? There is right now a very, very exciting book about marketing for farmers. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it will, um, you know, probably, I probably, I shouldn't say, I don't know for sure. I don't think Penguin would be interested in that book like this one, but a small press probably would. Um, I speak a lot. Uh, I'm going to Wyoming uh, in a, geez, like in a week, and I'm going to be talking to their departments of agriculture and to farm groups. And I always said, said to Jason, like, oh, I do this one-day marketing thing, and I wish there was a book I could give them that, that would help them with these concepts after I'm gone. And he's like, well, you could write that book. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I am writing that book. So, yes, but hopefully nothing else befalls us that warrants another memoir. <laughs> I want people to be like, those boring Amundsen's. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Rum River event with Lucy Amundsen. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast episode featuring Charlotte Rogan, who spoke at Carver County Library, Chanhassen, on September 28th. Architect-turned-author Charlotte Rogan made waves on the literary scene with her fiction debut, The Lifeboat, a tense and haunting survival story. Her newest, Now and Again, hit shelves in April and is being hailed by the Huffington Post as just as harrowing and even more complex. Meet Charlotte Rogan, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Aroundtown Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.